Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our passage for today is Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Father, we we come here together as your people in celebration of the fulfillment of the promise that through incarnation you sent your Son as a Savior to the world. Lord, we ask that you would shift our minds this morning away from ourselves, what we've done, what we're doing now, and, and what we plan to do in the future. Lord, that you would center our minds on you and your work that our hope is in you and the promise that you fulfilled through your son. We recognize this promise fulfilled in this morning and every day. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We are in our second week of Advent, and we are now looking at Joseph, the impossible possibility of God. God is fulfilling ancient promises. He uses scandalous means to complete impossible promises through exceptional events. And that's what we see in this birth narrative concerning our Lord Jesus Christ and his father, Joseph. And in all of this, we do see how God may do as he desires. And when he does, he is always right. When you and I think of the fulfillment of prophecy, we often think that everything runs smoothly, that there's a start and there is a finish and everything between is flat. And yet in the fulfilling of prophecy, there are are many ups and downs and valleys and rivers and canyons and gaps. And in the midst of all that, God is always moving his storyline forward. Even when we think of Christmas, we have this idyllic thought that we gather around the table and we have everyone dressed in white shirts and ties. And it's more like Christmas Vacation with Clark Griswold, if you've ever seen the movie, where he's sitting around with a turkey dinner and he hits the turkey and the turkey gives a big and then deflates. We sometimes fail to realize that the narrative, the story, is messy. There's a lot going on within the story itself. We have spiritualized it as it were. We've sterilized it, but it's a messy, messy thing. When we look at these gospel narratives, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as they are looking together at the same event from a different vantage point or perspective, we realize that they are carefully crafted documents When you think of Matthew chapter 1 and 2, it begins with this genealogy in verses 1 through 17. That's a carefully crafted genealogy. The intent is to show 
where Jesus is coming from, who Joseph is as the son of David. And in many ways, it is like a finely tuned engine. Every piece, every part, every verse is intentionally placed so that it points us toward one thing. And Matthew's doing that. Matthew's endeavoring to show how Jesus Christ is indeed the fulfillment of the seed promise. He is the completion of this blood picture. In Jesus Christ, all the promises of God are coming together. What is equally interesting concerning this narrative is how it pictures or images the book of Exodus. We've just finished Exodus. And you might think, well, Exodus is on your mind, so now everything looks like Exodus. Well, it actually pictures Exodus. If we were to show the parallels between the Exodus event and this birth narrative in Matthew's gospel, we would see how everything is pointing toward the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, all of the Old Testament promises, all of the Old Testament prophecies, all of the Old Testament pictures are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that's what our narrative is doing for us. We're not making this up. You can read the Bible as a single unified story, and at the center of it is Jesus Christ. He is doing that for us. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes, For all the promises of God, all the promises of God, find their yes, their amen in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God. Jesus Christ is indeed the fulfillment of these ancient promises. What for us needs to be remembered is that in the fulfilling of these ancient promises, God uses scandalous means. And that's a point we'll stress throughout our study. The gospel is a scandalous message. But he is using scandalous means to complete impossible promises through exceptional events. The story is pushing everything forward. What is a scandal? And we mentioned how the gospel is scandalous. To the unbelieving, it is a stumbling block. It is a rock of offense. And you and I, as the people of God, are called upon to believe the record that is written. And last week, we had this refrain, you've got to be kidding me, right? This isn't really happening. Well, that same idea is moving us forward in the story concerning Joseph. But it is indeed a scandal, and it is something we have to keep in mind as we read these stories. It is a scandal to works righteousness. It is a scandal to those who seek salvation outside of Christ crucified. It is a scandal to those who believe it is Jesus plus. And it is a scandal to those who would not believe the gospel. And the question confronting us as we read the Joseph narrative is rather simple, but does the gospel offend you? Does the gospel offend you? Does it embarrass you among your family, your friends, your co-workers and classmates? Or can you believe that what is written is true? Do you openly identify and testify that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord, born of a virgin in the way that is stated in the text? Do you identify, do you testify to these truths or are you shamed, are you offended? And really that's what we see inside our story. And when we talk of Advent, Advent is indeed a scandal. And it is, a, it is scandalous on three fronts. First of all, it is scandalous concerning the situation itself. We've already considered Mary, now we are looking at Joseph. And then we'll look at this idea of an angelic visitation that tells Joseph what is taking place. And then finally, it is a scandal concerning the incarnation, God with us 
all three of those ideas are offensive to the unbelieving. They are offensive to the works righteousness, to the Jesus plus something. It is offensive. But we have these three moving parts within the text, and we will note those three parts. The scandal of the situation. Three things, or rather four things, will be noted. First of all, his destiny. Secondly, his betrothal. What exactly is taking place in all of the scriptural language? Thirdly, his bride, and then Joseph's decency. It is interesting in verses 16, 17, and 20, it says that Jacob, in verse 16, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, it's giving us the genealogy of Jesus, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. It's tracing Joseph all the way back to King David. And then we read in verse 17 of our text, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The way that the author crafts the genealogy is very intentional. He is wanting us to see how Joseph is tied to these ancient promises, and his heir, his seed, as it were, is the rightful heir to this throne of David, as we saw in Luke's gospel. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Concerning Joseph, Joseph is from the house of David. He was either, and I thought about these things, but he was either an only child because he's now the heir apparent to the throne of David. And all things being equal, Joseph is that guy, yet we found him as a carpenter inside the city or town of Nazareth. So he was either an only child or the firstborn male among other siblings. And at this point in history, the house of David had fallen into a forgotten, out-of-the-way, and ill-maintained home. The house of David had lost its luster and glory. And yet throughout the narrative of chapter 1, Joseph is identified as the son of David. Joseph is heir apparent. The second thing we see is his betrothal. It's interesting to remember how that betrothal worked. When they were children, an engagement took place between the parents of Mary because she was beyond that consenting idea. So you have this engagement period where the parents of these two children would agree to have their children marry when they come of age. Then the betrothal period is that one-year period prior to the actual marriage event. They are now, in a sense, legally bound. So the language of our text says that Mary is the wife of Joseph, but they are in this betrothal period, and Joseph is the husband of Mary, but they have not yet come together. It was still not proper or morally right for them to come together during this betrothal period. So we speak of engagement, but it's more than that. In fact, when Mary is found to be with child, Joseph has every right to turn her in, make her a public spectacle, and have her stoned. But he does have to give her a bill of divorcement during the betrothal period because he knows that he is not the father of this child. And then after one year betrothal period, you have the actual marriage, and the marriage is what seals the deal. But that's where we find them inside this betrothal period. And then the third thing you have is the bride, Mary. The passage identifies Mary as the mother of Jesus, which I find interesting. If you come from a liturgical background, that language of Mary being the mother of Jesus is somewhat celebrated. As Protestants, we fully identify that Mary is the mother of Jesus, but in a very different way that someone from, say, a Roman Catholic background 
we do as Protestants, as evangelicals, celebrate Mary. But the passage identifies Mary as the mother of Jesus. What does exactly that mean? Well, Jesus grew in her womb. He received from her a human nature, that's Philippians chapter 2, and was birthed through normal or natural means. What it does not mean is that she functions as a special intercessor or mediatrix or co-redemptrix with Jesus in redeeming humanity or was a perpetual virgin or without sin. These are all things that have been attached to her by others, but the biblical text simply identifies her as the womb that carries the Christ child. And he receives from Mary his human nature. But Mary is... Nothing more, and that seems so startling, but nothing more than the womb that is carrying the Christ child. We recognize Mary's role in God's story, but we should not, nor can we, elevate her above any other or equal to Jesus. Amen? But all this reeks, as it were, of scandal. So you have this destiny, his destiny. I mean, he was destined to sit on that throne. He's the offspring of David. You have the betrothal period itself, then this bride of Mary, and then finally the thing we see is his decency. In his decency, Joseph is shown to be a humble, pious, obedient man. This is who he is, his decency. Inside this text, and it describes Joseph. It says that Joseph was a righteous or just man. Joseph was honorable. Joseph was a religious man. He was an obedient man. He was a pure man. He recognized that he was not the father of that child, but he was doing everything possible to protect whatever character Mary still had. And he wanted to put her away quietly. In fact, the text, and we'll see this with the visitation of the angel, he wanted to stay with Mary. He wanted to be with Mary. He did not want to put her away. But he was wanting to act in an honorable manner. But we see his decency. And... It's good to be decent, amen? The fact that he's a decent man is a good thing. And he is a decent man in many ways. Several years ago, one influential theological professor concluded that it makes no difference if the virgin birth really happened. We can view it as a myth in the highest and best sense of the word, is what he said. Does the conception of Jesus and his humanity through the Virgin Mary and righteous Joseph offend you? Does it embarrass you among your family, your friends, your co-workers and classmates? Or can you believe that what is written is true? Are you ashamed of the gospel? We have the scandal of the situation. We see that Joseph is destined to sit on the throne and his offspring will be that one who occupies the throne of David, and of his kingdom will be no end. We look at the betrothal period. We see his bride, Mary, and then his own personal decency. He's a decent guy. But can you believe that? The second thing we see concerning the text found in verses 20 and 21 is the scandal of the visitation. It says in verse 20, But as Joseph considered these things, behold... So Joseph has become aware that Mary is with child... The text does not tell us that Mary went to Joseph and said, I'm pregnant. And again, I cannot process or fathom how those conversations sounded, what it felt like to hear the person you're engaged to be married tells you that they're pregnant. Are you with me? That's already rough. And then tells me that your pregnancy is 
by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've got to believe you're like, yeah, <laughs> right, you know, that's a stretch. So that dialogue, but it doesn't say that Mary told Joseph. Joseph became aware that Mary is with child because she was becoming great with child. That's, that's part of this. And the angel then visits Joseph in a dream. Three things about this visitation. First, the visit itself in verse 20 is startling. It says, behold. The word behold appears for the first of 62 times in Matthew. 62 times Matthew is going to use the word behold. It often introduces surprising action. Or it simply serves to arouse interest. Something's happening. Now we know that the angel Gabriel appeared to Zacharias and to Mary. We don't know who this angel is apart from an angel of the Lord. It could very well be Gabriel. But the visit was startling. The second thing that we see in verse 20, it says, But as he considered these things, so Joseph is deep in thought, and he's wrestling as to what he should do. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then verse 25 of chapter 1 says, but, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The visit was comforting. The angel says to Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. I believe that Joseph was highly conflicted. He didn't quite know what to do. He loved Mary. He wanted no harm to come to Mary. And yet he fully recognized that the, that the child she bore was not his own. And I think when the angel came to him and said, you may take Mary as your wife, I think he was delighted. He loved this woman and he wanted to marry this woman. And he was going to protect that woman by marrying her. It was a comforting visit. But it was also a revealing visit. Verse 21, the child that Mary's carrying in her womb, is going to be called Jesus. And why? Because he will save his people from their sins. There's two thoughts inside that text that are notable. The first is his name. We know that the Greek form, Jesus, is from the Hebrew, Yeshua, or Joshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. His name defines his mission. Jesus is here to save his people from their sins. That's why Jesus exists. It's always amazing to me when you look at the commercializing of Christmas how little Jesus is actually in it. We are the ones, as a church, who put Jesus in Christmas. That's why we celebrate the season. Advent reminds us of what is true. That's what we do as a gathered church. We are reminding ourselves why we are here in this world. Jesus, and his name says that he is a savior. But a savior of what? He is a savior of sinners. Jesus is the savior, and you are a sinner. And you and I, as sinners, need to be saved from sin. That's what Jesus does. One cannot be saved from something without also being saved for something. That's why it's simply not enough for us to say that we are saved from sin and death 
but we are saved for joy and glory. This story has an ending. It does get better. Perhaps not in the horizontal, in the immediate, or even long term. But we know in the vertical, it is already right. And one day when we are with him, our joy will be full. This is what Jesus does. He saves sinners from sin and death and for joy and glory. Years ago, in an interview with a pastor of one of our nation's largest churches, he was asked specifically what he believed about the virgin birth. He said, I could not in print or in public deny or affirm the virgin birth of Christ. When I have something I can't comprehend, there's a lot in Scripture that I cannot comprehend. I just don't deal with it. Does the visitation of the angel and his message offend you? Does it embarrass you among your family, your friends, your co-workers and classmates? Or can you believe that what is written is true? I wish to confess before all public that I believe in the virgin birth. I believe the story as it is written. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. You have the scandal of the situation, the scandal of the visitation, and then finally, the scandal of the incarnation, verses 22 through 25. The text says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. I think there are two precious names, two titles in our text that are so assuring. Jesus, Yahweh saves, and Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus saves, and God is with us. The text continues. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The scandal of the incarnation. From our text, there are two ideas that I wish to share. The first is the scandal of the prophecy. Throughout Matthew's gospel, we read, and all this took place to fulfill. Eleven times inside of Matthew's gospel, Jesus Christ is identified as the fulfillment of an Old Testament promise. There are 40 quotations from the Old Testament in the gospel of Matthew that is identifying the story of Jesus as the fulfillment of of promise. But prophecy for many people is a scandalous idea. They can't get around it. It is a rock of offense. They stumble over it. There are 2,500 prophecies in the Old Testament, 2,000 of which have already been fulfilled. There are a remaining 500. For those prophecies to be fulfilled would be 10 with 2,000 zeros following. That's a big number. It was done where just eight of the prophecies, eight prophecies. What are the odds of those eight prophecies being fulfilled in Jesus Christ? Well, it was said if you take a silver dollar and you fill up the state of Texas, knee-high, and place in it a blindfolded individual, and they reach down and they grab the one silver dollar that was marked, the odds of him grabbing that one silver dollar, blindfolded, marked, knee-deep in the state of Texas would be the same as Jesus Christ fulfilling but eight of those prophecies. People find that offensive. 
They look at prophecy as something that's written after the fact. But you and I say hundreds, if not thousands of years prior to this moment, prophecies were made concerning Jesus, and Jesus fulfills them all. The scandal of the prophecy. The second thing in our text is the scandal of the presence. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. As we consider the Jesus story, we look at the conception and birth as scandalous. And yet this is indeed a scandal, but it is not a scandal of immorality. The real scandal is that God is with us. We thought God was up there or out there, maybe somewhere in the future, but then Mary got pregnant. And the scandal of that pregnancy is that God is intimately present. The miracle of presence, the very intent of creation and design behind creation is that God would dwell among his people for their joy. God with us. The miracle of the virgin birth, though wonderful, is really the secondary matter in this passage. A sign of the far greater miracle in mystery of the incarnation. The mystery of God becoming flesh and taking his place among us as one of us. That's the scandal. Can you believe that God would become man for our joy? And that in Jesus, he would save us from our sins? That's the scandal. Joseph receives the assurance from the angel that the child conceived in Mary's womb is God. How do we wrap our minds around that? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. He is God manifested in the flesh. In him, all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. In Emmanuel, God has come to dwell with us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us in a tent. And we beheld his glory, human flesh. A glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In order to say at least something in the way of further explanation, it is probably best to obtain this information from Matthew's own gospel. This is how it happened. Christ, God, now dwells with us. He's with the sick to heal them with the demon-possessed to liberate them, with the poor in spirit to bless them, with the care-ridden to rid them of care, with the judgmental to warn them, with lepers to cleanse them, with the diseased to cure them, with the hungry to feed them, with the handicapped to restore them, and overarching everything else, one day all things will be thoroughly straightened, and with the lost to seek and to save them. God with us. That is a scandalous truth. Can you believe that? We are indeed free in Christ. We are free in Christ. That's why Jesus has come to save us from our sin and to dwell among his people for their joy. We are free in Christ. Richard Dawkins has made the statement one of many, that the virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, even the Old Testament miracles, all are freely used for religious propaganda. And they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticated and children. That's who we are. Why? Because we believe the record. Does fulfilled prophecy and God in Christ offend you? Does it embarrass you among your family, your friends, your co-workers and classmates? Or can you unashamedly believe that what is written is true? 
That's what Jesus does. Jesus is scandalous. The gospel is scandalous to those who would not believe. They trip over the gospel. They trip over the story that you and I have just considered. Does the gospel offend you? Bill Meyer has said, what I have against religion is that they start you when you are so defenseless. I mean, I was three when they started pumping this garbage into my head. I believed in Santa Claus and the fairy godmother. Of course, I believed in a virgin birth and a guy lived in a whale and a woman came from a rib. But then something happened that made me doubt all of it. I graduated sixth grade. See, the gospel is scandalous. To the unbelieving, it is a stumbling block and a rock of offense. But to those who believe, it is a sweet fragrance of life. Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior from sin and death? Do you know who you are apart from Jesus? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says that you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. The dentist of Ephesians 2 is a separation from God's presence. You were, you were as far removed from God as you could possibly be. And there was nothing you could do to span that gap, to close the distance between you and God. Do you believe that you can't, that you are a sinner, and that the wages of your sin are death? Do you believe that? And do you believe that you cannot save yourself? Thankfully, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, but God. God stepped in. What did God do? Everything we're reading about the Virgin Mary and Joseph, a decent man, is true. God stepped in, and God began to make a way. And he is using scandalous means to complete impossible promises through eventful moments. That's what God is doing. You can't, only God can, and thankfully Jesus did. Jesus did come, and we call him Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. This is what Jesus does. Jesus brings God among us. Jesus dwells among us for our joy. He saves us from sin and death and for joy and glory. Do you believe this? Do you know that you cannot save yourself? Do you believe that only God can? And do you believe that Jesus did? Do you believe this scandal? It's scandalous. Or are you offended by the accusation and your only hope lies in an infant? Are you offended by the fact that you believe in Jesus? Advent is a scandalous moment. There's a sense in which it is dirty. It's difficult. And yet for us who believe, he is indeed our Savior and God with us. Jesus and Emmanuel. That's who he is for us. So I pray that as we work through the Advent season, as we get ever closer to Christmas, we will remember two names, Jesus and Emmanuel. He saves us from our sin and he dwells among us for our joy. That is our Jesus. I'm going to invite you to stand up as we close our prayer. Our Father, as we think on these things, to the unbelieving, to those who have yet to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior from sin and death, this is scandalous. We have become comfortable with such truths, but we affirm them, we confess them, not just individually, but corporately, that they are true. Father, may we not be ashamed among our family, our friends, our co-workers and classmates, but may we stand 
firmly with Jesus, may we be identified by Jesus, by Emmanuel. And we might not be able to explain all of the details, but we do believe the record. So, Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this time together as your people. We do thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.